I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 59, The Right of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Right of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy Engel, volume 1, pages 339 to 347. Basel had his own sweet key. The security guard stationed at office entrances rarely conducted random checks of the 9,000 employees that went through the Admiralty's doors every day. In the end, Basel was found guilty of offenses against the Official Secrets Act and sentenced to 18 years in prison by the Lord Chief Justice. But he was paroled after serving only 10 years. John Basel died on November 18, 1996. Inevitably, the question of blame came to the forefront. After the Burgess, McLean, and Philby spy spree, the public was convinced that Bussell had the protection of some influential official or officials at Whitehall. The opposition Labor Party, who was having a political field day with the Vassal spy debacle, suggested that Lord Peter Carrington, the first Lord of the Admiralty, should resign. The Kennedy administration contributed its two cents worth to the Vassal case by naively suggesting that Prime Minister Harold Macmillan fire all known homosexuals that were connected to with government posts related to national security and defense. Macmillan, all too aware of the large numbers of high-ranking homosexuals at Whitehall, the Foreign Office and British Intelligence Services, fired back that he would not sink to pre-McCarthy-like tactics. Prime Minister Macmillan, however, did reluctantly appoint a formal tribunal headed by Lord Radcliffe, Lord of Appeal, to conduct a thorough investigation of the circumstances in which Vassal's offenses had been committed, as well as other allegations that involved ministers, naval officers, and civil servants said to be connected with the case. Of particular interest were the 23 letters that were found among Vassal's belongings, from Mr. Galbraith to Vassal, that were written in 1967, 1957. For what reason would a minister of the Crown be privately corresponding with his assistant secretary? However, the tribunal's primary interest appeared to be tracking down two newspaper stories on the Vassal spy case that cleared claimed, one, that Vassal had two sponsors in the Admiralty who had shielded him from important parts of the vetting process, and two, that Vassal sometimes wore women's clothes on Western and trips. When Reg Foster of the Daily Sketch and Brendan McCullen of the Daily Mail, who filed the original stories, refused to reveal their sources, Foster was sentenced to six months in jail, and McCullen received a three-month sentence for contempt of court. Soon, it was back to business as usual at the old boys' club. Macmillan and his conservative government managed to survive the Vassal scandal, only to be taken down by the Profumo affair that was simmering in the wings. The well-publicized 1963 sex scandal did not involve homosexuality, at least directly. I have, however, included a brief synopsis of the affair because it will introduce the reader to Dr. Stephen Ward, who, like, like Peter Montgomery, mentioned 
earlier in connection with his lover, Anthony Blunt, will figure prominently in the, in the, at the conclusion of this chapter on the Vatican connection to the Cambridge spies. The profumo scandal, pimps, call girls, and spies. For all its worldwide publicity, it was basically a gal meets guy affair with one major complication. The guy was a very married, very distinguished Harold Oxford graduate and former MP John Jack Profumo, the British Secretary of State for War. The gal was a young, beautiful showgirl and part-time hooker named Christine Keeler, who came from the stables of the well-known socialite osteopath pimp Dr. Stephen Ward, and the complication was Captain Yevgeny Eugene Ivanov, an officer in the DRU, Soviet military intelligence, posing as a naval attaché at the Soviet embassy in London. Keeler was also sexually servicing Ivanov. The whole affair probably would have been swept under the rug like so many of the other tawdry affairs of prominent establishment figures with girls many years their junior had not Perfumo made the unforgivable mistake of no, not committing adultery and possibly imperiling national security, but of denying the affair in a speech before the House of Commons. Perfumo was forced to retire in disgrace, but later managed to salvage some self-respect by conducting charity work in the East End, for which the Queen awarded him one of the nation's highest honors the commander of the British Empire. Keeler got a nine-month prison sentence for an unrelated perjury charge. Loads of publicity and numerous lucrative scandal sheet contracts for revealing her story. Ivanov was called back to Moscow after having successfully brought down the Macmillan government and was never heard from again. Stephen Ward, who was responsible for introducing Perfumo to Keeler, fared the worst. He allegedly took his own life under suspicious circumstances on July 30, 1963, the last day of his trial for pimping. The British establishment could sleep much better at night now that Ward, the keeper of their dark secrets, was dead. By the time titillation of the Profumo case wore off and the vassal affair became a distant memory, Philby had made it safely home to Moscow while Blunt was still freely roaming the halls of the Courtauld Institute. The Cambridge Spies, a final assessment. It is impossible to discern which of the Cambridge Spies was the most important to the Soviets or did the most damage to the national interests of Great Britain and the United States and their allies. Each in their own way contributed to the wholesale destruction of the West intelligence services that hemorrhaged for more than 30 years. There is no question today that for Stalin, virtually every intelligence secret Britain and the United States had was an open book. The record is clear. The Soviets knew every major intelligence operation run against them from 1945 to 1963. They knew every wartime movement the Germans made in advance thanks to their penetration of Bletchley Park where the British codebreakers broke the German Enigma machine. 
They knew the exact date of D-Day, a secret that Churchill tried to keep from Stalin. They had access to every electronically transmitted verbatim communication between Roosevelt and Churchill, and later Truman and Churchill. Soviet scientists had sufficient scientific data to build an atomic bomb. Stalin had previewed diplomatic agendas for all the big four conferences on post-war Europe and on and on, thanks to the Cambridge spies. The Cambridge spies not only sent thousands of their own countrymen to their deaths, but American and other allied forces as well. Yet none went to the gallows for their treachery, nor did one spend a single day in jail. It is a matter of public record that Whitehall did its part to make the life of Burgess and McLean in Moscow as financially carefree as possible by granting the traders emigrant status which enabled them to draw sterling from their private accounts with the Bank of England through the Russian State Bank. Indeed, all the evidence points to the fact that Burgess, McLean, and Philby were permitted to escape behind the Iron Curtain in order to avoid a public scandal. If Whitehall and Buckingham Palace wanted them caught, they would have been caught. British security laxity was criminal, but whose fault was that? The famous spy novelist John Le Carre, who, like Rebecca West and John Costello, share a realistic view of traitors, once called M15 and M16 sanctuaries for male misfits. In intelligence work, as in all British political life, top positions and rapid advancement was based foremost on class. There were many highly qualified M15 and M16 employees who were untainted by corruption, but high posts and rapid promotions were the exclusive prerogative of Britain's ruling class. Political leaders, high government officials, and influential members of parliament that some were confirmed pederasts and or communists mattered not. It was a system that guaranteed British intelligence would self-destruct, and it did with the Cambridge spies. The next step was to attempt an establishment cover-up to protect the old boys' club and hide from the British public the extent of the damage done to the nation by the Cambridge spies. The age-old instinct for survival kicked in. When in doubt or difficulty, sit tight and say nothing and hope the disaster will blow over was the law of the club. The Soviets depended upon it and they were not disappointed. Lessons for the Catholic Church. In addition to offering a concrete example of the development and colonization of the emerging human turn to the, in the West, during the first half of the 20th century, the betrayal of Britain and the British people by the Cambridge spies covers, offers their other insights that are applicable to the current situation in which the Roman Catholic Church finds itself perceived by the clerical humantern. As the late John Costello wrote, if there is one lesson to be drawn from the career of Anthony Blunt and his Cambridge co-conspirators, it is that the ethics of conspiracy and the motivations for betrayal are not merely ideological, but timeless and never-ending. Was the official cover-up <clears throat> by the British government of the horrendous deeds of the Cambridge spies so very different from the American 
bishops cover up the criminal deeds of its pederast and homosexual clergy and religious. Is not the Catholic clerical home turn as capable of inflicting as great a harm on the church and the faithful as that inflicted on the people and government of Britain by the Cambridge spies under the direction of the communist Comintern. Although the issue of the communist infiltration of the Vatican and American church as a factor in the rise of the Comintern in the church is taken up in chapter 18, 20th century harbingers, some general observations based on the Cambridge experience are worth noting here. First, no effective action can be taken against the Homentorn network within the Roman Catholic Church unless that network is acknowledged and well understood. Subversion and treason from within, combined with attack from without, is as near perfect a prescription for disaster for the Church as it was for Britain during the era of the Cambridge spies. The fact that the Catholic seminary, priesthood, and religious orders are relatively closed societies is no guarantee that they can't be effectively penetrated and colonized by hostile forces. After all, Japan was a relatively closed society during the 1930s and 1940s, and yet it was effectively penetrated by one of Stalin's greatest spymasters, the Russian-born Richard Sorga. His Japanese espionage ring penetrated the highest levels of the Japanese intelligence that was thought to be impenetrable by foreign agents. Careful vetting is as essential to the Catholic priesthood and religious life as it is to national intelligence services, even more so since the stakes for the former are eternal. The current sex abuse scandal in the Catholic priesthood and religious orders in the United States and abroad is ample demonstration of this. As in the secular order, prevention is the best cure for moral disorder. Once the moral cancer of homosexuality metastasizes a seminary or house of religious, half measures are generally inadequate to bring the disease under control and the whole institution must be shut down. However, as in the specific incidents of the Cambridge trader Anthony Blunt, competent vetting can be undone by corruption of those who exercise ultimate power and authority. The American bishops have their version of the British Old Boys Club, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and as it is currently constituted, it has been thoroughly compromised and corrupted by the Homintern. The homosexual network at the USCCB operates no differently from the homosexual network at Cambridge, London, and Whitehall that made the Cambridge spy ring possible. The old boys club protects its own. There is a similarity between a secular trader's hatred of the social order and nation that nurtured him and the homosexual priest's hatred of the Roman Catholic Church with its moral absolutes and restrictions and authority figures. Once the homosexual priest or religious is absorbed into the homintern, his allegiance and subservience to it supersedes all other former loyalties. His devotion to his family and his faith is atrophied. As Father Rueda has charged, this new allegiance is capable of functioning functionally dissolving the normally stronger bonds of religious affiliation. 
homosexual priests and religious not only foster dissension within the church in matters of sexual morality, they also use the church and its resources to spread the teachings and propaganda of the homintern. Neither the state nor the church can afford to ignore the presence of vice in its midst. Britain's upper class winked at the violation of the moral law with regard to homosexuality and paid a heavy price for its folly. Likewise, the church cannot be indifferent to vice within its priestly ranks and expect to escape unscathed from the consequences of its actions. The treacherous exploits of the Cambridge spies resulted in the massive hemorrhaging of intelligence to the Soviets and untold damage to Britain's national interests. The treacherous exploits of clerical pederasts and homosexuals in the church has resulted in the massive hemorrhaging of fidelity in the church and a feeling of betrayal in the hearts of every loyal Catholic layman and priest. But even more damaging than the foul acts of a handful of moral miscreants in the priesthood and religious life has been the cover-up by the American hierarchy of these betrayers of the faith, including those in their own ranks. Like the secular traitor, the homosexual pederast bishop should be condemned as a moral pariah by his fellow bishops and scorned and ostracized by them. The Vatican should, at the very least, remove the offending bishop from any position of authority and, where warranted, defrock and return him to the lay state. Dame Rebecca West, when commenting on the sentimentality generally associated with traitors like the Cambridge spies, noted that everybody knew that they were communists, but very few people really believed it. She said, for many, West continued, communism is like a dream, something you can recollect about a feature of a vulgar district in the world of fancy, and that it seemed quite ridiculous to think of it as a real threat. Now even the media, as well as the papers, with the day-to-day -day reporting of the McLean and Burgess affair realized that this international conspiracy of communism was as real as the railway accidents they were reporting and a lot more dangerous to the nation, she concluded. Likewise today, virtually everyone in the Catholic Church today knows that there are active homosexual pederasts in the priesthood, religious orders, national hierarchy, and the Vatican, yet very few people actually believe it. Not until the secular media started to expose actual court cases involving clerical sex abuse by Catholic clerics did Catholics begin to realize the real threat to the faith and the faithful posed by the clerical homintern. All may not be lost, however, if, to paraphrase the words of Dame West, church leaders are willing to trade in their humiliations and wounded pride for some much-needed wisdom. The Cambridge Spies and the Vatican Connection The Vatican Connection to the Cambridge Spies is best approached indirectly through the central character of Dr. Stephen Ward, to whom the reader has already been introduced in connection with the Profumo scandal. For more than a decade, Ward played the sex broker for a large number of wealthy and influential members of the British establishment. He also provoked, he also provided high-class call girls for the British intelligence services, some of whom were used in various honey trap schemes or to fill the sexual needs of visiting dignitaries. 
Ward, as one might guess, was not your typical money-grubbing pimp. Rebecca West described him as a court jester who took vicarious delight in heterosexual matchmaking for his high-flying clients whose homes he inhabited, most notably Cliveden, the fabled English estate in Buckinghamshire of the Anglo-American Astors that were an exclusive gathering place for London's wealthy, well-connected individuals, politicians, diplomats, policy analysts, and peers. John Perfumo's affair with Christine Keeler, a ward creation, began at the Cliveden swimming pool, and British intelligence sometimes used the Astor residence to accommodate foreign hosts. A man of varied talents, Ward was a successful American-trained osteopath by profession, an outstanding bridge player, and a professional portrait artist whose clients included members of the royal family. He attracted a large number of upper-class patients to his uptown Cavendish office, including members of the Churchill family and other high-level government officials, peers of well-known vice racketeers and international celebrities. Ward was also known to do abortions on the side. His fourth talent was pimping and the organization of exclusive sex parties that catered to the sophisticated sadomasochist and occult London crowd. Among Ward's close friends was Bill Astor, eldest of the four Astor boys, and one of Ward's wealthy and powerful patrons who had unconventional sexual taste. A better known facet, a lesser known facet of Ward's quasi-secret world was his connection to London's upper-class homosexual and lesbian networks that included prominent diplomats and clergy, Whitehall's, Whitehall officials and members of Oxford and London's literary and artistic circles. One of Ward's most intimate relationships was with Bobby Shaw, Bill Astor's stepbrother by his mother Nancy's first marriage. An active homosexual and alcoholic, the handsome and charming Bobby was drummed out of the blues. The Royal Horse Guards were being drunk on duty and was later arrested and imprisoned for homosexual offenses. He died by his own hand. Among the prominent British homosexual diplomats and civil servants with whom Ward cavorted was Sir John Gilbert Lathwaite, the first United Kingdom ambassador to Ireland and Deputy Undersecretary of State in the Commonwealth Relations Office for India. Lathwaite was a prominent member of the elite Travelers Club that catered to travelers of distinction and where London's upper crust homosexuals shared drinks, ideas, and gossip. Sir Gilbert maintained his homosexual connections with numerous foreign office officials scattered around the world as senior diplomats. He, like Bobby Shaw, was indebted to Ward for introducing him to young homosexual partners that were brought to Cliveden. Ward was also on friendly terms with the dynamic Cambridge homosexual trio of Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt, and Peter Montgomery, Blunt's young lover and closest friend and confidant. Peter Montgomery was born in 1909 to a distinguished Irish family with important connections to the Protestant Orange Order order and a large estate of Blessingbourne, five-mile town in Northern Ireland. Like many Irish upper-class gentlemen, 
He was a product of the English public school system that included Wellington College in Cambridge. A handsome, rather shy young man with girlish looks, the artistically inclined Montgomery remained the submissive and adoring partner of Blunt throughout their short-lived romance and lifelong friendship. At the start of the Second World War, to the surprise of all his friends, Peter decided to follow the Montgomery family tradition and took up a career in the military with the Royal Intelligence Corps, 21st Army Group. In 1945, he was made aide-de-camp to Archibald Percival Wabel, the Viceroy and Governor General of India. After the war ended, Peter drifted back to his first loves, art and music, and to Irish politics. A talented musician and accomplished conductor in his own right, he was appointed to the BBC's General Advisory Council, 1952 to 1971, and became president of the Arts Council of Northern Ireland, where he served from 1964 to 1974. In 1964, he was made High Sheriff of County Tyrone and later Her Majesty's Vice Lieutenant of County Tyrone. Although in his later years, Peter Montgomery went on record as telling British intelligence who was investigating Blunt's Soviet connections that he never had any secrets from Anthony, it remains unclear if he ever shared any classified information knowingly or unknowingly with Blunt while in the army. When in London, Peter stayed with Anthony at the Courtauld Institute and was introduced to Blunt's royal connections at Buckingham and Westminster and to Blunt's young gay party guests. In turn, Blunt occasionally visited Peter at the family estate in Northern Ireland where the Cambridge spy was introduced to the Irish country house homosexual circuit. It is possible that Peter and Anthony were provided with young Irish boys from local orphanages or welfare centers like the Kinkor Working Boys Hostel in East Belfast. In 1980, the Kinkor pederast scandal broke into the news. The orphanage is house father, William McGrath, dubbed the Beast of Kinkor, was arrested, tried, and convicted for rape and sodomy of minors under his care. One of the dark secrets that came to light during the trial was that McGrath, who had served as an M-15 operative and was active in Ulster paramilitary adventures, had been financed up until mid-1976 by none other than Sir Knox Cunningham, Blunt and Peter Montgomery's mutual friend and fellow homosexual from Cambridge, Hugh Montgomery and Batista Montini. What little is known about Hugh Montgomery, Peter's brother, had, has come to us largely from the Irish writer Robin Bryant, who, although himself from humble origins, eventually became part of the London homosexual clique that included all of the above-mentioned characters. Taken as a whole, Brian's observations and recollections have proven to be quite accurate, and he has kept a large correspondence to back up his memories. According to Brian's, Hugh Montgomery, like his brother Peter, was a member of Ward's homosexual clique. Hugh's one-time lover was Sir Gilbert Leithwaite, who sponsored him for membership in the Elite Travelers Club. During the mid-1930s, Hugh Montgomery 
as a young and upcoming member of the British diplomatic corps, served as the charge d'affaires under Sir Alec Randall, the British representative to the Vatican. It was at this time that Hugh met an equally ambitious and upward-bound Vatican diplomat by the name of Monsignor Giovanni Battista Montini. Later, Hugh converted to Catholicism, entered Beta College, and was ordained a Catholic priest. Robinson uh, said that Hugh told him that at one time he and Montini had been lovers. Was Hugh Montgomery telling the truth about his relationship with the future Pope Paul VI, or was he exaggerating the degree of intimacy of their friendship? Did Hugh discuss his alleged affair with Montini with their, his brother Peter? If so, had Peter relayed the story to his lover Anthony Blunt, who most assuredly would have passed the information on to his Soviet controller for possible blackmail use? In short, is there a connection between the Cambridge spy network and the Vatican? These are important as well as intriguing questions that will be fully explored in Section 5 that includes a detailed analysis of the charges of homosexuality that have been leveled against Pope Paul VI. And this is the end of my reading from Volume 1. There is nothing left but prayers, which I'll maybe go into some other time. So I'll conclude my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and deliver us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.